Lincoln Riley and Brian Kelly, two of the most iconic coaches in all of college football, are on the move. I'll talk about the implications for the programs they're leaving and discuss which one is more likely to succeed in their new destination. In Major League Baseball, the free agency frenzy is on and New York Mets owner Steve Cohen is not playing around. After signing Max Scherzer, the Mets are officially in win-now mode. I'll tell you why next on Stern Spotlight. Welcome into another edition of Stern Spotlight. I'm back and better than ever, baby. It's been a couple of weeks since I last recorded a podcast. Been a month, as a matter of fact, but got kind of hung up with work. As a lot of you guys know, I work at WFAN. CBS Sports Radio is an associate producer. People have taken holidays the past couple of weeks with Thanksgiving and everything else going on. So I've been kind of pinch hitting on short notice and working at the station. Since the last time I recorded a podcast episode, I've also started writing columns for our website, which you can find on cbssports.com. Did a really interesting column this past week about the quarterback frenzy that's going to exist this year in the NFL draft and the scramble that'll inevitably happen among teams and how the Lions and the Texans and the Panthers and the Steelers and some of the other teams that are in contention uh, for potentially taking a quarterback in the draft and may want to explore that avenue shouldn't rely on taking one. Really interesting column that all of you guys should check out. Be sure to like, subscribe to Stern Spotlight on Spotify, on Anchor. Leave me a comment or hit me up on Twitter at J underscore Stern 97. I hope everyone out there listening had a fantastic Thanksgiving, was able to catch up with your family, enjoyed some good food and football as always. It's funny, last week I think Thursday kind of stole the football headlines. Obviously we had the Cowboys and Raiders playing it out in a thriller. The Raiders ended up coming out on top. But Sunday when we were all watching football, anyone who is on social media, even for five minutes, had their attention shifted to what was happening in the world of college football because it was so significant. Two of the best coaches in the sport, two guys that anyone who's follow, who follows college football at all would know about. Brian Kelly from Notre Dame, Lincoln Riley from Oklahoma. The outside perception among fans and media members was that both guys were really happy at their jobs. Notre Dame and Oklahoma were two of the most successful programs in college football this past season. Both guys had found sustained success at their respective programs. Both were in the upper echelon of the sport. Both guys were making a lot of money. When you look at the checkbox of criteria for good jobs in college football, coaching at Notre Dame and Oklahoma satisfied all of them. But as always, the case always is in life, the grass is always greener on the other side of the street. And neither of those guys, evidently, were satisfied with where they were at. Mere days after shooting down rumors that he would take the LSU job. And Lincoln Riley definitively said, I will not take that job. Turns out he wasn't lying. 
He just had his eyes on a more prestigious coaching job. I know LSU is in the SEC. They have this storied history. It's a program that's always going to have success. They're always going to have the backing and the resources and whatnot. But the glitz and the glamour and the potential of the USC job was too much for Lincoln Riley to pass up. USC, once upon a time, had Pete Carroll manning the sidelines in Southern California. Back then, they were one of the top programs in the sport. We all know about the success Mark Sanchez had there, as well as Matt Leinart, Reggie Bush. There's no shortage of top-line players that pass through that program. But over the last decade or so, they've fallen off the map. And new athletic director Mike Bond knew he had to make a a splash to reinvigorate that fan base. Because unlike 10 years ago, now USC is competing for attention with the two NFL teams that play in Southern California. The Los Angeles Rams are one of the best teams in the NFC. And the Chargers, up until a few weeks ago, were in contention to win the uh, AFC West. So you're competing with two good programs, and you need to get a big-name guy in there to excite everyone. Nobody, though. Not in their wildest imagination could have imagined that Bond would be able to land Lincoln Riley. And that's exactly what he did. Signed him to a massive 10-year contract. The details haven't been finalized yet, but there's been some pretty reputable sources putting the information out there that he's signing a 10-year contract, close to $100 million in value, maybe even a little bit higher than that. And USC is really opening up the bank for, to, to bring Lincoln Riley in there. They're buying him a house, apparently. They're giving him access to a private jet. So they're really making him the kingdom of the castle. They saw what was going on in Norman and how Riley had ruled over the town, essentially. And he was on the same level as the governor of the state of Oklahoma. That's how relevant he was in that region of the country. And there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen in Southern California. You have Hollywood, you have all these celebrities, you have two other good football teams, you have two really good baseball teams that have stars of their own. So USC had to bring, had to roll out the red carpet and bring Lincoln Riley in in style. Now the biggest immediate question that this poses is which coach is going to be more crucial to their program success. I would say that Lincoln Riley going to USC is more meaningful than Brian Kelly going to LSU. When you look at what Lincoln Riley accomplished at Oklahoma, his accolades are extremely impressive. The guy was 54 and 10 in 64 games at Oklahoma. That's ridiculous. 64 games and he only had 10 losses. Almost single digit. And he played a much larger role in Oklahoma's success than Brian Kelly played in Notre Dame's, without a doubt. Look at how Lincoln Riley put Oklahoma back on the map. Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield, two guys that transferred from their first university, Murray from Georgia, Mayfield from Texas Tech, went on to become Heisman Trophy winners and the first overall pick in the NFL draft. This is after they were transfers, remember. Now, Jalen Hurts enjoyed a similar level of success with the Oklahoma Sooners as a transfer from Alabama. 
He went on to be a second-round pick in the NFL draft, and now he's the starter for the Philadelphia Eagles. Lincoln Riley reinvented what it meant to transfer from one university and make a mark at another. Before Lincoln Riley, transferring was widely frowned upon. I know guys have had success doing it, but there was this perception that if someone transferred, they were damaged goods. That's not the case anymore because of how Lincoln Riley has shown that guys can have success when they transfer. And it's not just Murray, Mayfield, and Hertz either. Look at some of the other explosive offensive players who made their mark in Norman under Riley's air raid offense. D.D. Westbrook, Joe Mixon. He created this offense that was flat out scary to defend. They would throw the ball all over the place. They'd ground and pound it down your throat whenever they wanted to, and it will. So this brand of punch you in the mouth and beat you up football on offense is something that Riley created. And I know Oklahoma was already on a good trajectory with Bob Stoops Stoops as the coach. But Lincoln Riley, he took it to another level. And he doesn't just take it to another level by what he's doing in terms of coaching and developing the players in his system. He also just has a swagger and a feel to him. He's the cool kid. He's the alpha in the room. He's only 38 years old. He was like the Sean McVay of college football. Everyone looked up to him. He wasn't some old cast-off. With all due respect to Kelly and Saban and some of the other older head coaches in the sport, Riley just has a different way of doing things. And everyone wants to talk about how the transition to the SEC was what scared Riley away from Oklahoma. He didn't want to have to go compete with Alabama and Georgia and LSU, assuming they get back onto the map with Brian Kelly. But who can blame him? Anytime a program has to transition from one conference to another, there's going to be a learning curve. It's going to be hard. It's going to take time no matter how good your recruiting connections are. And when you're second tier and a second class citizen in the SEC, that's really bad news for your job security. Just look at what happened in Florida with Dan Mullen. Or South Carolina, how's that going? Will Muschamp was forced out of town. Shane Beamer tried his hand this year. They went 6-6. Six and six. Not a whole lot better. So everyone wants to say he chickened out. No, he was protecting himself. People forget that these guys can be fired at any time. It's in their best interest to watch their back and not care about what the outside said. And going to the SEC... I just feel like Riley would have always been second fiddle to Kirby Smart and Nick Saban. That's just my opinion. Now, maybe he could have eventually taken down those programs, but it would have been a lot harder. I talk about Riley wanting to be the king of the castle in Norman, Oklahoma, or the state of Oklahoma for that matter, which he was. In the Pac-12, he is going to absolutely control that conference. Look at the level of competition. Who's the best team in the Pac-12 aside from Oregon? Utah? Neither of those two teams is ranked inside the top 10, which speaks to how wide the talent gap is between the other conferences in the Power 5 and the Pac-12. The Pac-12, you're not competing with these elite programs that have all of these resources and that have had sustained success for years. 
in the SEC, Lincoln Riley would have been a tadpole trying to swim around the ocean. In the Pac-12, he's a big fish in an extremely small pond. He is going to control that conference within a matter of years. Southern California has the most fertile recruiting ground in the country. Lincoln Riley, deep recruiting ties, excellent recruiter. He's going to have a field day there. He's going to pick up the flag that Mario Cristobal and the Oregon Ducks have planted in that region of the country and throw it behind, in the dumpster behind the frat house. That's how easy he's, easily he's going to dispose of it. Because he's a big-time guy. And big-time guys get the top recruits. And on another level, from a marketability standpoint, Lincoln knew this was the next step. Now he's in Southern California in the era of name, image, and likeness, which impacts his players and his potential recruits because now they can make money off of their brand. Lincoln Riley, good-looking young guy, can be an actor, can be a supermodel, can become an Instagram or social media type of celebrity. This is excellent for him. Think about the endorsements. Think about what him sitting courtside at the Staples Center watching LeBron James or at Dodgers Stadium watching Clayton Kershaw pitch is going to look like. He's a big-time guy now, and the visibility is going to increase exponentially. Plus, I think Brian Kelly is much better equipped to handle the cauldron of the SEC than Lincoln Riley. I know Riley had a ton of success in the Big 12, and he kind of cast uh, created a niche of his own, and one where he could be very successful. He was the manager of his own ecosystem. But Kelly's competed with the big dogs. He spent 12 years in the Big 10 competing against Urban Meyer and the Ohio State Buckeyes. Who was uh, Riley's biggest challenger in the Big 12? Oklahoma State with Mike Gundy? Give me a break now. Kelly knows what it takes to succeed at the highest level because he's done it before. And at 60 years old, I don't think he cares about going to a flashy place like Southern California. He just wants to go to Baton Rouge and steer the ship in the right direction. That's all he needs to do. This is a guy that knows how to run a program. He's done it a number, at a number of different places. People forget that this is someone who really started on the ground level, and worked his way up. First head coaching job was at Grand Valley State Division II school in 1991. Slowly worked his way up the coaching ladder, was at Cincinnati from 06 to 09, before shifting over to the Big Ten. It's been a seemingly easeless transition for Kelly in the Big Ten. This is someone who is a college football coach at heart and can do it anywhere and everywhere, and that's why he's going to be just fine in the SEC. There's no reason to be intimidated by Saban or Smart or any of these guys for that matter because he's done it with the biggest and the baddest in this sport, and he's, he knows exactly what it's going to take. And now he doesn't have to worry about the high academic standards or the prestigious image of Notre Dame he can do things his way at the, in the SEC at LSU, and no one at the administration is going to blink or even put up any objection or fight. 
The other sport that stole headlines, so to speak, this past weekend was Major League Baseball. That's a shocker, isn't it? Especially given that baseball as a whole has decreased and declined in popularity over the past couple of years. And we're in late November. This is NBA and NFL season, right? It's not time for baseball. Who wants to go play baseball in November? People who live in Florida and California, they're such a small demographic anyway. Who cares about them? And who talks about baseball in November? Who cares about baseball? It's a bunch of grown men dip-spitting and scratching their nuts. What's it matter? All right, I'm ranting and going off the rails a little bit now, but it is truly amazing how much attention Major League Baseball got over the past week, week and a half. And the main reason that the sport was under the spotlight so much, so to speak, and the reason I'm putting free agency under my spotlight is... Veteran free agents were rushing to sign their contracts before the current collective bargaining agreement set to expire tonight uh, expired. Guys wanted to get their contracts in, and the new collective bargaining agreement doesn't just affect valuation of player salaries. It impacts how teams are going to approach it. Um, There could be a universal DH for the National League. That'll impact how some NL teams value certain guys that they view as potential DHs. And there's a lot of factors at play here. But one thing that we learned over the past weekend is that Mets owner Steve Cohen, the billionaire guy, the hedge fund manager that everyone likes to talk about because he's very visible. Let's be honest. He's on social media. He's interacting with the fans. Uh, He's much more of a people's person in that sense than a lot of the other owners. So he's a fun guy to talk about. He made a statement over the past weekend. He signed four guys with extreme boom or bust potential. But regardless, he's going all out. He signed outfielders Mark Kana and Starling Marte. Utility infielder Eduardo Escobar. He's bounced over uh, across a number of different positions over the past two seasons with the Diamondbacks and then with the Milwaukee Brewers last year. And then most importantly, if that wasn't enough, if losing out on Steven Matz didn't hurt Mets fans enough, they got their perfect consolation prize in the form of Mad Man Max. Mr. Max Scherzer is taking his talents to the Queens and the Mets all of a sudden have the best one-two punch in Major League Baseball. Watch out rest of National League. Watch out NL East. Everyone is on alert with these decisions. And there's been a lot of back and forth the last couple of days. Some people think it's smart to go all in. Some people don't think the Mets have the pieces in place to justify these types of decision. Personally, I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle. And I'll say this much. The foundation as it is right now, I don't think is strong enough to compete for a World Series championship. And, and that's the goal at mind here, right? When Co- it is introductory press conference, Cohen said the goal was to win a World Series within five years. Not make the playoffs, not win the division, not sneak into a wild card berth and win the wild card game. No, it's to win a World Series, and that should be the goal at mind. No teams construct their roster saying, eh, I want to be mediocre, I want to go 500. No, when you are going all in, go for it. Try to win the World Series. Problem is, the current core and the guys aren't on the roster 
are very unreliable. And I don't know what I'm going to get out of them, which is why it's hard to justify going out and signing all these other pieces when the foundation is so shaky. Jeff McNeil, one of the centerpieces of this roster as it stands right now, down year last year. Pete Alonso, he'll get into one. Home run derby winner, has excellent power. Overall, above average hitter. But man, he's streaky. He hits for low averages. He strikes out a lot. Comes with his drawbacks as well. Same can be said for Dom Smith. I feel like Dom Smith is a poor man's Pete Alonso. Pete Alonso provides a lot more power and pop consistently, whereas Smith only does it occasionally. That's how I'll compare and contrast those two guys. And then the foundational shortstop that Mets fans want to yell about until the cows come home, Francisco Lindor. Everyone says that he's going to get back to his all-star form next year, but I've seen nothing to believe that. Had a drop-off year in the pandemic, uh, 2020 pandemic-shortened season. Obviously had that really slow start last year. So I'm not depending on Francisco Lindor to return to form. And in Major League Baseball, when teams go through a rebuild, we talk about it as a youth movement. With the Mets, I kind of feel like they're going through this veteran gray hair movement. They have all of these guys who, on the roster currently, who are essentially veterans because they're in their late 20s, early 30s. And then they sign four guys who are all in their 30s. Kana and Escobar are 32 years old. Marte is 33. Mad Max is 38. And unfortunately, they're just not getting any younger. So now... They have this roster that's constructed around all veteran players. And I think Escobar and Marte in particular would be fantastic complementary pieces for a young roster. The Miami Marlins has signed either of those guys. I would have said that's a good decision because they have some young pieces uh, on that team and they need a couple of bats in the lineup. Some contact guys who hit for a high average. But the Mets... The decisions make a lot less sense. And when you look at that rotation, it has question marks up and down. Starting with the ace of the staff in Jacob deGrom. I know deGrom last year and in years prior, and generally speaking, is viewed as one of the best pitchers in baseball. And for good reason. He showed out. When he's healthy, he's a Cy Young Award candidate, day in and day out. Dude is honestly a pitching hack. What other pitcher in Major League Baseball can throw 101 miles per hour on a pitch with movement? It's honestly insane. The problem is he's had trouble staying healthy. Missed two and a half months last season. Was handicapped by an arm injury at other points in the year. Was on a pitch count, so to speak. So I'm not depending on him staying healthy for 162 games and potentially a postseason if you need him after that, because that's what we're playing for uh, in general, right? Carlos Carrasco behind him. is going to be 35 next season. Missed a lot of the year with an injury, and when he was on the mound, stunk up the, bo- stunk up the barn. He was not good. So you're depending on Carrasco to already, off the bat, without talking about the rest of the starters, you're depending on Carrasco getting back to his form from a few years ago you're depending on Jacob deGrom staying healthy. That's playing the what-if game. That's saying, we'll be successful if these things happen. 
if in front of these ha- things happen is not good because you're playing with fire. Going through the rest of the rotation, the Mets have something in Tyler McGill. I really do believe so. He's a good young pitcher. I know he struggled with his mechanics at times last season. It's a little bit inconsistent, but I think he has a high ceiling. Still, as it stands right now, he is a fourth or fifth starter. Joey Lucchese, at this stage of his career, is a number five starter. Nothing more, nothing less. Maybe you want to work him out of the bullpen at points. Maybe you start with someone else as the opener, and he comes in in the second or third inning. But I'm not depending on that guy being a starter. And when you have to face a high-octane Atlanta Braves lineup, a potent Philadelphia Phillies team, Chaz reigning MVP Bryce Harper, Gene Segura, one of the best hitters in the National League, JT Real Muto, solid offensive catcher. That makes things difficult. Now, if DeGrom and Scherzer were to go on three days rest or four days rest and they were trying to shorten the rotation throughout the season, the prospects of them succeeding sound a lot more likely. But as the rotation stands right now, I'm not buying it. You need more than two guys that can pitch. And that bullpen struggled at times too. Edwin Diaz had a bounce back season, but what is he at this stage of his career? I don't know. These decisions, the decision to sign those four guys, has massive, massive boom or bust potential. The boom side is the Mets win the division, they defeat, they defeat Atlanta, and there is blood in the water in the National League East. The Braves only won 87 games during the regular season last year. I know they were riding the magic carpet in this Cinderella story run all throughout the postseason. They had these unworldly performance from the unsung heroes, but they're not unbeatable. I know they're getting back Acuna and Soroka, and in theory, the Braves are a lot better, but that's in theory. These games are played on baseball fields. They're not played in theory. They're not played on paper. So they're not this elite team in the National League East, not in my opinion, at least. They overachieved last season. And in the National League, I I know you have the Dodgers and the Giants as potential hurdles, but they're not unbeatable. They haven't established themselves. Neither organization has established themselves as a dynasty. Last year, the Dodgers got taken down by the Braves. Two years ago, they lost in the opening round to the Nationals. They can be beaten, and it's been proven. So if you can win that division and you have to face either or both of those teams in the postseason, I feel good about the Mets' prospects of beating either, quite frankly. The bus potential and the downside of these decisions, though, is what has fans wary. It has them questioning everything. And if these decisions backfire, they will have catastrophic consequences on the Mets organization that impact them for the next five years. The guys they sign don't stay healthy. If they underachieve, they can't figure it out. And all four of them, by the way, are major regression candidates. uh, Marte, Kana, and Escobar are all older. Mad Max doesn't have the has too much tread on the tire at this stage of his career, so it's possible that they don't perform as well as they have earlier in the career. And if they don't, and they 
struggle to carry this roster, um, the, the Mets are going to have a tough time. They're not reaching the postseason even with the guys they have on this roster playing average and the complementary piece is playing average. They need Marte to hit 300. They need Max Scherzer to pitch to a 2.00 ERA and be a Cy Young candidate next season. Because if they don't carry the load, no one else is. There's just this massive weight of pressure sitting on uh, the new free agent signee's shoulders in a huge way. Because right now the Mets don't have a lot of guys who can hit for high averages, and they're expecting that from Escobar, Cana, and Marte to kind of be those pieces. In some way and on some level, these moves resemble what the Braves did at the trade deadline, right? They went out, they got Soler, Rosario, and Jock Peterson. The Mets went out and got three veteran pieces, but instead of acquiring them via trade, they overpaid for them in free agency with the expectation that they would play well in year one, two, and three, and that they would have to eat a year or two on the back end of the contract. So be it if the team plays well. But if they don't, you will never hear the end of fans griping about the quality of these contracts. Also consider that the Mets are the Mets. Them signing players automatically decreases their odds and chances of success and that things are going to backfire and not work out. And I know a lot of people say, oh, the Mets are the Mets until they win a World Series. The Browns are the Browns until they win a Super Bowl. I understand that frame of mind and why people would object to my take on that basis. It makes sense. And I'll eat my take and I'll look like an idiot if I'm wrong. But in my lifetime, the Mets organization has not proven to be confident. Neither has the Browns. There's been all of this controversy and scandals within uh, the organization. They haven't been able to win many games. They've cycled through general managers and owners, and it's just smelled bad. Like Joe Judge said with the Giants earlier this season, the fish stinks from the head down, and it really does with the New York Mets. So until they succeed as a team, I'm not believing it. I'm a see-it-to-believe-it type of guy, and I'm not buying the Mets right now uh, with this good team on paper because it doesn't always translate. And they haven't won anything significant recently. I know they made the World Series in 2015, but they were stomped over by the Kansas City Royals. And quite frankly, they didn't belong in the World Series that year. That was the Cubs' year uh, to, play, to win the World Series, in my opinion. Thankfully, they won the uh, following year, breaking that massive World Series drought. But speaks to the fact that the Mets had no business playing in the World Series that year, and you can't really count that as a successful season. Their track record with free agents also isn't good. Anyone remember Jason Bay? I know that name triggers trauma and rings a bell in the heads of Mets fans, but he was one of their most prized free agent acquisitions recently. Had a very successful career with the Pirates, with the Mariners, with the Red Sox before signing with the Mets. He was going to be their franchise left fielder for the next decade. Ended up not working out. They ended up having to eat the remainder of his contract. We all know what happened with Bobby Bonilla. He's still getting paid a million dollars every July 1st. That's why we have a Bobby Bonilla day. He's another one who's become rich off a woefully bad contract by an incompetent organization. So I don't buy anything with the Mets. But it's about damn time that Cohen and company prove my ass wrong. 
That'll do it for this edition of Stern Spotlight. It felt so good to be back on the air podcasting, breaking everything down in the world of sports. Be sure to like, subscribe on Spotify, on Anchor. Hit me up on Twitter at J underscore Stern 97 to get featured on the show. And I'll talk to you again next time on another edition of Stern Spotlight.